You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Welcome back to Monday Science. Hope you're having a great start to the week. Let's get straight in with our Monday Science Person of the Week. And this goes to Dr. Sonia Zulfika, um, who is an associate professor based in Egypt at the American University in Cairo. Now, every single academic has been working so, so hard over the pandemic to ensure the smooth running of all their teaching programs. And uh, we want to give a special shout out to Dr. Zulfika. She's been dedicated to ensuring a smooth undergraduate teaching experience during the pandemic. And she's engaged her students in online classes through live interaction and even created a, a group on WhatsApp so her students could get to ask questions and get prompt responses. On the last day of classes, some of the students expressed their gratitude to faculty members for their ongoing support. Um, and despite all the circumstances. And Dr. Zulfika had a special special surprise from her students where they put up thank you note on their screens. And she said, it was an overwhelming experience for me to earn so much love, affection and respect given the fact that I'm teaching this course for the first time. I think that's absolutely wonderful. In terms of news, there's a biotech company called Bluebird. They identified that gene therapy for sickle cell um, is not linked to cancer. And so the gene therapy works by editing a patient's own um, stem cell. So that's the hematopoietic stem cells. And using a viral vector, it inserts a healthy copy of the B or the beta globin gene, which is then, which is mutated in um, sickle cell patients. And so there was a leukemia case, which uh, Bluebird Bio disclosed on the 16th of February. And this led to the company having to halt two of the sickle cell disease trials and suspend sales of a similar treatment for beta thalassemia. The following week, the FDA, so they put a hold on the company's trials and the the company's trials for sickle cell and trials for beta thalassemia. But thankfully, the company has now conducted a variety of lab tests and found important evidence demonstrating that it's very unlikely that their viral vector played a role in this disease. And this was according to uh, their chief scientific officer in a press release. So that's some really good news um, in advancing therapeutics for sickle cell and thalassemia. So on to today's guest, we've got a special guest. We've got Dr. Faith Uwadia, um, who is an immunologist uh, from the Francis Crick Institute. And we're talking about the hidden connections between malaria, cancer, and much more. And this is a two-part episode. So um, next week's episode, we'll be talking about um, diversity in STEM. So hello, everybody. Welcome back to another amazing episode of Monday Science. Today, we have Dr. Faith Uwadia. Hello, Faith. How are you? I'm okay. I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm happy to have you on here. Finally, uh, I've been wanting to, you've been on my list. I feel like everybody's on my list at the moment, but you've been on my list. Um, so I'm really happy to have you on here. Um, so let's start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so as you know, I'm Faith and I'm actually a postdoctoral scientist at the Francis Crick Institute. So I work within the field of immunology. So it's all about how our immune system basically protects us or actually promotes disease. Um, I'm a born and bred Londoner, so I've lived in London pretty much my whole life and I rock London, it's what I'm about. (laughs) 
but I'm also I like to always think of myself also as like a person who's basically the queen of hobbies so I love to always have something on the side so at the moment I'm all about cycling that's all I'm doing cycling around the city during lockdown but in the past I've done lots of other things but yeah that's me lovely what other things actually I'm quite interested in to know what other fun hobbies you have yeah so into baking I also homebrew beer which I really enjoy doing um in the past I was really into crocheting so me and one of my friends crocheting I love crocheting yes amazing it is I I was was obsessed yes and and it's so like you can really just get all in the hook hook eye hook it's very like therapeutic I think yeah I think if you know me, anything you'll know about me is once I'm into something, I'm really into it. So me and my friend during my PhD, we started the crocheting club during Amazing. the lab. So it was triple C club, cakes, cocktails and crochet. Amazing. That's what we did. <laughs> you need to bring it back and expand, expand, especially yes. now in the virtual space. Um, about the cycling. So every, well, not every, a lot of people started cycling during lockdown. Um, I did not out of the fear of just cycling <laughs> but yeah. I know that a lot of people are really into it how do you do you feel safe cycling on the roads of London because hmm, I don't know you know what I think I got lucky because I started during lockdown so the streets were quiet <laughs> so you know I was just getting used to okay we're pedaling we're staying straight I, like I know how to ride a bike but you know there's that fear of starting and stopping and getting the brakes going yeah. um, but I was able to do that when none of the cars were there at all um and then when the traffic started coming back it was slow so I was adjusting with it so now I feel quite confident cycling but at the same time I'm mostly cycling from home to work it's the same route and I've got a back route which doesn't go on main traffic a lot so the real test will come in June so we'll see (laughs) no that's really true I mean when I was asking I have a couple of friends who are really into cycling and and got into cycling because of lockdown I think quite a few people did and um when I was asking one of them I was like oh so because my fear is um well there's a lot of fears around cycling but it's also how like being on the road feeling a little bit exposed and mm-hmm. uh, worried about the cars and my, my friend was like just just look forward it doesn't matter the cars will maybe beep you but it's okay <laughs> just as long as you know you're moving forward I was like I don't know if that's what everybody should do but okay thanks um, I mean, you should definitely look back that would be my advice as well please look no, back but, but move no, forward I, but this was my question because I was like aren't you meant to look back to check he was like no 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 just look forward so <laughs> clearly won't be well I didn't take his advice it actually made me feel a bit more scared um okay so got a couple of of, of questions what's your favorite song at the moment you know what I I, I saw this question and I was just like you know what? I'm 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 old, man. Because I feel like my favorite my favorite song is, at the moment is Tracy Chapman "Fast Cars," and I don't know what it is about that song. It's something about like hope and like aiming for like bigger things, and then like having that resilience and still going forward. And this song came out basically when I, before I was born. <laughs> And I'm still like just banging it out every now and again. <laughs> it's know. a classic. Tracy Chapman, anything okay. Tracy Chapman is a classic. Yeah. I, I, I'm I a, a fan. Thank you for that. I'm going to add that. We've got a, a playlist, actually, um, a Spotify oh, playlist for, um, yeah, with all our speakers, uh, speakers, sorry, guests' favourite music. So I shall be adding that on there. And could you recommend a film and or a book? Yeah, yeah so... Films are much easier at the moment because so I got a recommendation from a friend recently to watch a film called Moxie on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's basically in this high school and there's a lot of like sexist behavior. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and it's just about these um, young girls like setting up this revolution to like fight all the sexist behavior. And it's a kind of film that I wish existed when I was that age, because <laughs> yeah. I think it's like the antidote to all the, the teenage movies that you kind of watched when you were growing up. Mm. I think in terms of books, I feel like my reading kind of died as soon as I started my PhD. So <laughs> I tell you, there's something about having to read <laughs> but I, I'm the same as you that I, I find it hard to read um, outside of reading papers and things like that and it's just it's very difficult I think um, yeah. to, to read on top of everything else you have to read yeah I agree and I, I think the way I've kind of gone around this is I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and I listen to a lot of audibles so a lot of audiobooks um, and I guess there's been a book that I've just started listening to which so I haven't read enough of it to kind of recommend it, but I'm reading like Brown Baby by Nikish um, Shukla. Mm -hmm. So he's the same guy that wrote, um, well, he kind of edited a series of essays called The Good Immigrant. I don't know if you've read it. It's so good. It's like just lots of immigrant stories from around the world, like people from around the world and like moving to like the UK and what their experience is. And it's really interesting because I think as a black person like Nigerian, I know I know the Nigerian experience of being an immigrant, but I actually don't know what the Thai experience is, or you know, if you're moving from somewhere in India, and it's just like individual stories talking about their immigration stories. And I think that's a great book. But also Brown Baby, I've also just started. So oh I'll let thank you, know. you for that. Yeah, thank you. I'm gonna add it to our list. So you mentioned that you are an immunologist. So can you just delve a bit deeper as to what is an, an immunologist and what's your favorite part about being an immunologist? Yeah, so an immunologist in the scientist kind of world um, is basically someone who does research to understand the immune system. So we're trying to understand how the immune system kind of functions during health, but also what goes wrong during disease. Um, and it's kind of about unpicking that and understanding what cells of the immune system are doing. And the idea being that if you know what's going on, we can maybe diagnose um, diseases of the immune system easier. And maybe we can actually come up with treatments that we can actually tackle these diseases as well. So it's about handling and understanding how our immune system actually works. In terms of the immune system, and uh, sorry, being an immunologist, my favorite part, I think it's something about like the mystery and the complexity of like the immune system. So I think people who aren't immunologists, one of the things they always say is, I hate immunology, it's so complicated. All you guys have is this random language and CD numbers. But <laughs> I think it's just something about that complexity. And it's like this hidden box that you don't know what's going on and you've just tried to try and figure it out and the mystery of it all. I think that's what I love about it. And then anything that you find out is just, it's brand new and it's just can have an impact. And I think that's what I love about science in general as well. It's that idea that you're finding something new that hasn't been known before. And that can be applied if you publish it and then someone else might gain something from that as well. So, yeah. That's really love interesting. Oh, I, I've <laughs> never had somebody explain, explain it that way. So it's really nice and I could totally um, feel the passion. Um, and that's, yeah, it's very interesting because I studying um, pharmacy, we do a little bit of immunology and I can't say it was my favorite topic, but now maybe you should have been the one teaching me because <laughs> I, I think I would have listened and learned. Um, so I, 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 can't, I was actually trying to think how I met you and I feel we met via the powers of Twitter first and then we realized we had another connection through a mutual friend. If that is that the right way around? I think that's the right way around. Uh, 
I don't know. I think it was the other way around. So I think, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we met via the mutual friend. So I heard of you via the mutual friend. Uh-huh. And then I kept hearing about you. Like, you have to meet Cathedra. <laughs> you have to. Oh, same. Then, yes, yes, you're right. Uh, yeah. It's the other way around. And then on the back of that, I think we met at a malaria meeting in yes. the Crick. Exactly. And then I felt like I already knew you because I'd heard so much about you. <laughs> Same. Same. So yeah, so now because I was because why I was actually trying to remember was then I was trying to remember how I knew about the research that you're doing, which was around malaria and malaria and cancer, which we're going to talk about, because I found yeah. it so so I'm still, I still say relatively new into the malaria space. Um, and I'm 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 not even I don't even know how far in the space I'm in other than just trying to join the club. But anyway, um, <laughs> and, and I think w- w- my interest around um, sort of the multimorbidity aspects of malaria, so an infection combined with a non-communicable disease, and just looking at that impact. So that's what led me to the malaria mm-hmm. and cancer work, and then knowing that that's what you were working in on. So, um, okay, first things first, I'm going to put the pressure on you <laughs> and say, could you explain okay. to us what is malaria? That's I think let's start off with that, and then we'll talk about your your research. Okay, so yeah, malaria is really interesting. I'd say it's essentially a tropical disease is the best way of describing it and it's a disease that affects a lot of people around the world so I think the last stats I've seen were probably 2019 and they talked about it affecting 229 million people so it's a vast disease and it's a disease that's spread um, through infection via parasites so you have mosquitoes um, and they carry a parasite and this parasite's from a family known as the plasmodium family And if you're bitten by one of these mosquitoes that's carrying this parasite, it basically causes a series of events that leads to malaria. So you'll find that people get um, symptoms such as fever, they'll get chills, um, they'll feel nausea. And it's because these parasites basically go through your liver and then they start to infect and um, kind of start to infect your red blood cells so they can replicate. Um, And the key thing, that's when you start feeling unwell because everything's going on within your red blood cells. It's all going wild. Um, And the key thing is that it's a really life-threatening disease. Um, So it's one of those diseases that it's it's devastating because not only is it life-threatening, but the people who are most likely to die of it are children under the age of five. And I think that's why it's one of those diseases that a lot of people have focused on because the reason they die is because of the fact that it takes such a long time to build an immune response to it. Um, that if you get a really severe case, but you're very young and your immune system's not quite educated yet, that's why people go. So I think a lot of focus needs to be on, and that people have been studying it for a long time. It's an old disease. Um, so yeah, a lot of focus needs to go into how we're going to actually come out of this. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's a really good overview because that was my um the fact that malaria has been around for so long and it's still a still a growing problem um is a surprise to me really um and 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 then some of the conversations i have when people say oh but it doesn't affect us in the uk actually imported malaria in the uk is a big thing as well um and, and especially in certain parts of london so it is a global issue and i really you know i'm happy to be trying to be part of the malaria club but i actually i would say it's interesting where you were talking about the um impact on children under five because I've always well sorry 
I won't say always, but I've looked at malaria in a, oh my gosh, everybody da da da. And then over time, when I'm trying to realize, figure out where I want to really just hone in and where there could be impact and really seeing the impact on children under five and, and, and pregnant women as well. And just seeing yeah. it's that thing of how is this still a thing, you know? Um, yeah. And and it just, it, it can be quite upsetting. Um, and so, yeah, so I think where as I said, the multi-morbidity aspects of malaria and, and other disease conditions. I was blown away. I can't remember what article I read. And I was, it was like talking about the connections between, hidden connections between malaria and cancer. I was like, what connections? Where, where does that come in? I, it's not something that I'd ever heard of or thought of, um, but I find it really interesting and really, really fascinating from a scientific perspective, but I still, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I still feel it's like a very underexplored area. So um, please, can you just tell us a little bit about your research, this malaria and cancer connection and yeah, just everything, please. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it's a really interesting, I was the same, to be honest, like I did my PhD in asthma, so quite different, but again, with the immune system. And it, I saw this job advertised that I applied for the postdoc, I remember just looking at this going, what? <laughs> Malaria is linked to cancer? And then I started reading, I was like, okay, now I, I, I want to do this postdoc. This sounds really interesting. And the cancer and the, um, what I work on, so you've got malaria, which obviously is the disease that I described and it's caused by parasites, um, but you've got um, Burkitt's lymphoma, which is the cancer that I work on. And there's multiple different types of Burkitt's lymphoma. So it's a cancer of the lymphocytes. So these are white blood cells within your immune system. And one type of lymphocyte known as your B, B lymphocytes or B cells, they're really important for producing antibodies. And you've probably heard them all across the news because of COVID-19. <laughs> so I've heard so many people now talking about B cells that have never heard of them before. But basically Beckett's lymphoma is an aggressive cancer of the B cell, which leads to fast over, um, overgrowth of this cancer because the growth goes out of control. Now, how it's linked to um, malaria specifically is the fact that people have known for more than 50 years that in some parts of the world, so if you look at parts of Africa and sub-Saharan Africa or in Papua New Guinea, areas where um, Plasmodium falciparum, which is one of the parasites that can cause um, malaria is endemic. So found in many, many high instances. They've known that it's actually been linked to endemic Burkitt's lymphoma. And if you can kind of eradicate um, Plasmodium falciparum from some of those areas, for example, they also know that there's a reduction in the number of cases of Burkitt's lymphoma, but people don't really understand why. And so when people talk about um, that link between an infectious agent and you talk about a link to a cancer, it's not that the infectious agent, you get infected with it, you automatically get cancer. And I think that makes sense to most people because, you know, most of us have been infected with lots of infectious agents, but you're not necessarily guaranteed to get the cancer. It's just that the infection increases the risk of getting cancer. So if you think of cancer as a disease of genetic, um, in, oh, sorry, a disease of genetic errors, for example, it's just that infection kind of increases the chance of those errors taking place. So I hope that's an answer to the question, <laughs> but yes. like my research, yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, please yeah. continue. Yeah. Yeah, my research is just trying to underpick, um, unpick between malaria and Burkitt's lymphoma. What are the genetic changes that are taking place within the B cell? And how does plasmodium falciparum or plasmodium actually cause those cases? But with anything, it's not as simple as just that. There's also another infectious agent involved. <laughs> so in this case, on my disease, it's um, Epstein-Barr virus, which is another um, infectious agent. So it's a virus 
And most of us know of this virus because it causes mononucleosis or kissing disease. Um, but this has also been associated with um, circuit lymphoma, the endemic form. So it's this complex mix of these two um, infectious agents driving and causing risks that increase the risk of getting this um, cancer. Very, very interesting. And even Epstein, um, Epstein-Barr virus, yeah, the mono, isn't that what they used to call it sometimes? Yeah, mono. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember during my uh, pharmacist training, uh, we had a, a query because also the presence, if I remember correctly, the presence of that virus in somebody that would take um, amoxicillin or something can result in a rash. It's such a, it's a, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know if it's like a latent virus, I don't know the answer, but it's quite interesting in how it influences um other things you know whether it's just side effects of drugs or, or things like that um yeah that no that is interesting i i didn't know about it causing a rash per se but yeah it is a latent virus it hangs mm. around and it can basically survive the lifelong your life your whole lifetime and most of the world's population is infected with this virus so wow. you know, <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. it's one of those things um yeah yeah i just double checked yeah so epson uh, acute uh, infection associated yeah I, I always remember that I was like why <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway um so I, I know that you'd given an interview at the Francis Crick Institute and you mentioned that your background was a very important motivation motivation um towards behind your research into malaria do you mind just giving us a little bit more insight into why that is yeah I think for me I think malaria is one of those things when you're so my family's from Nigeria um and when you're from a Nigerian background Malaria is just one of those things that you kind of always hear about. It can be because, you know, you, you hear about people talking about it back home with the idea that, you know, malaria is a massive deal. Or it's the fact that if you have family members and they're going to um, Nigeria, for example, I've got to get myself these anti-malarials. So you kind of grow up with this idea of it being really important not to get that disease. But I think I didn't necessarily, I'd always heard those things, but I didn't necessarily know how bad the burden of malaria was within Nigeria until I saw some stats by the World Health Organization and it was like a quarter of the malaria burden around the world is in Nigeria. I was just sitting there going, what? And it's like, accounts for basically almost a quarter of the deaths as well. So I think for me, like given that family connection to Nigeria and knowing how hard it affects the people and where I'm from, I think it's impossible to, to not have that connection to knowing that your science is not only gonna benefit you know, people and society, but also where you're from. Um, yeah, so I think for me, it's always been that connection. I think it's nice to know that the research that you're doing can have a direct impact. I'm repeating myself, you know, no, here and abroad. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's interesting. There are lots of parallels because that was my motivator as well. And and, and um, also when, when you talk about the medication, I was, I was actually talking, um, we we're talking about taste and palatability of, of anti-malarials and the, the fact that there's not enough anti-malarials specifically targeted for children and in mm. the formulation strategies and things like that, which is something I'm starting to look into. And I just remember, I don't know if you have the same memory, but taking chloroquine as a child, like when you go to Nigeria and you take chloroquine it's like very bitter and then you you can't have the whole tablet quarter it's just it's yeah it's oh, it's yeah. Uh, an interesting interesting thing and as you said yeah the impact that 
malaria in Nigeria causes globally as well is, is when you see the statistics, I think there are 11 yeah. countries or something, 11 countries that contribute to the global malaria burden, 10 are in sub-Saharan Africa and one um, yeah. is India. So, um, and I think quite a lot in, in West Africa. So yeah, it's, it's a lot when you look at the stats. Um, yeah. you know <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah exactly and it's quite humbling as well because you're like wow it really affects as I said whilst imported malaria we don't talk I mean obviously there are people that that research it and research it and look into it but to a lot of people when you talk about malaria that is not our it's not our quote-unquote our problem mm. because it doesn't affect yeah, yeah. us in the UK but um when you hear the impact it has everywhere else and actually here <laughs> still in its yeah. own way <laughs> Um, you really realize it's, you know, there's a really big issue and it's something that as it's one of the oldest diseases, as you mentioned. So, you know, one of the oldest and yet we're still here. So uh, <laughs> um, just moving a little bit away from malaria, because you mentioned that prior to uh, your work in malaria, you worked in asthma. Is mm. that right? Yeah. So please yeah. just tell us a little bit about that. And are there any parallels in like the work that you're doing now that you've brought from this from the work that you did in, in asthma or your understanding at least? Yeah, it's quite interesting. It kind of, you know, one of those things that you didn't realize how connected it was until you actually made that transition. <laughs> it was kind of natural. So um, the work that I did was on asthma. So asthma is one of those really common diseases. Most of us know someone who's um, got asthma, but the type of asthma that I was looking at was more the allergic type of asthma. So it's the type of asthma where you it's the amount of an incorrect immune response when you come in contact with something harmless. So that could be house dust mite feces. So it's like in your bed and you're constantly exposed to it every night, or it could be animal dander just from your pet. And it's that exposure or that constant exposure that can kind of lead some people to develop allergic um, disease. But what a lot of people don't necessarily know is it's because it's a misdirected immune response. So if you imagine that the immune response that you um, you mount to an allergic agent is a kind of immune response that you would amount to a parasite necessarily, like say you're infected with some sort of helpless infection, but you're mounting that to something harmless. So clearly there's just something going wrong with the cells within the immune system. And what my PhD was looking at was one specific cell within the immune system. So it was a cell called the T follicular helper cell. So it's a type of T cell, which ironically again, is another lymphocyte similar to the B cell. But what this T cell does, it plays a really important role in the regulation of antibody production. It kind of helps B cells produce antibodies. And we know that as part of um, allergic asthma, one of the problems is you produce a wrong type of antibody, so an incorrect type of antibody called IgE. So we were wondering what role does the T follicular helper cell play in that, that production of antibody? So I spent a lot of time using mouse models of allergic disease. Um, trying to understand what it actually did. So I found some interesting things. I found that, you know, not only was this cell found within secondary lymphoid organs, such as your lymph node and your, um, your spleen, but we also could find them within the lungs as well. And that's the main site of information when you're undergoing um, allergic disease. But we also found that the, the whole thing with science, which you'll always learn, is that it's much more complicated than you thought it was. So we found that this role didn't only play a role in promoting the production of that incorrect IgE antibody, but it also seemed to play a role in regulating antibody production as well. So, but to provide protection. <laughs> so, you know, it was a, a double-edged double sword in a way. And I think the thing that links that work to what I'm doing now within my postdoc is that the cell, the T follicular helper cell, is found within a structure known as a germinal center. 
Um, and the germinal center is the structure that forms within your secondary lymphoid organs, such as your lymph node and your spleen. And it's in response to infection or some sort of immune, uh, immune response taking place. But this structure where the T follicular helper cell is um, found is also the structure where all the events that I'm talking about to do with malaria and vertex lymphoma, that's kind of the same structure. The cells are in those structure there is where we think the problems and the mutations and all the things that are driving um, Burkitt's lymphoma also found. So although I've switched from asthma to malaria, I'm still looking within cells within the germinal center response. Mm. I hope I explained that. It's quite it complicated. Was, explain, no, it's yeah. perfect. It's really interesting. I keep, I'm going to keep saying that. I actually really wish you the one that taught me immunology. No offense to whichever lecturer taught it. Um, <laughs> okay. because, no, because it's really, it's really interesting. And I think there's so many things in what you said. So there's, um, there's also the understanding that you can translate learning from one disease or condition to others yeah. and there's that unity that I don't think people sometimes get with science that you yeah. even if you're in a different disease area there will be some parallels that you can take and help you with your understanding in another area yeah, of course yeah it's really really interesting um so on to the other big elephant in the room COVID-19 hi uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah let's let's get into that okay yeah. so how has it been for you let's talk about it let's be specific how has it been for you because I know you're back in the lab now so mm. what was that journey like for you not being able to be in the lab get your work done um and then being in the laboratory working under lockdown conditions and everything what's that what's that been what's that been oh like? my gosh COVID-19 was such a spanner <laughs> You know right. what? You're so talking about it in the past tense. It's still very much here. <laughs> true. So, so true. So, so true. So true. But it's just like the initial lockdown. I, that was, for me as a lab researcher who works with mice, it was just pure stress is the best way of saying it. Especially so I, so me, I had to actually self-isolate maybe two weeks before the country went into the initial lockdown. Because, you know, at the time I had like a cough and I was, no one knew what was going on. I was like, you know, it's best that I stay at home. So I'm just isolating, not knowing the country. I was like, by the time I get out, you know, I'll do this two, three things in the lab and then it'll be fine. The country went into lockdown and I was like, oh, okay. So it's just me emailing lots of stress. Okay, um, can you please end this over here? Can you do this for me over here? And meanwhile, we're getting emails from the Institute going, all these experiments need to end now. now they were, know how yeah, it's all they shut it down. down. They were not oh, here to play. They shut it down. A nightmare. Yeah. And also, when I went into isolation, the country was normal. When I came out of isolation, people were crossing the streets and looking scared at me. It was mm. a very weird experience. But for me also, because I work on tumor models, so and thank God my tumor models were allowed to continue because they were very long-term experiments. Um, but I got my first ever tumors in the whole of my postdoc during lockdown. So I'm sitting here going, I was supposed to have help when I had my first ever tumors because, you know, I hadn't ever seen them before. But then it happened during lockdown. So for me, it was a process of coming in London on the bus, being like, OK, I'm not taking my life at risk. I'm allowed to do this. I know this is fine. <laughs> and then, yeah, going doing experiments, which I hadn't ever done before during lockdown. Sorry, Faith, could you just explain the tumor thing? So why, why that's important to your work? Like what your oh, the tumor yeah, yeah, growth? Yeah. So I'm because I'm working on Burkitt's lymphoma and I'm doing a mouse model of um, Burkitt's lymphoma, but specifically endemic Burkitt's lymphoma. So what I'm doing is I'm exposing mice to a mouse version of the malaria causing parasite 
called Plasmodium shibaldi shibaldi, and I'm waiting to see how long these mice take to develop tumours. And the key thing I want to see is whether or not these tumours look like what you'd see in human um, endemic Blackett's lymphoma, because it's really important for us to understand what changes um, the infection I'm making to the generation of that actual tumour. So I had this experiment going for a year at this point, waiting to see, are there any tumours? Are there not any tumours? And the answer was, yes, they get tumours, which is fantastic. But it happened in a period of time where no one could help me in the lab. <laughs> so that was quite dramatic. And obviously, if you're going through the whole lockdown thing that happened as well, a lot of my experiments that I had planned initially had to be stopped. So a lot of my experiments didn't start. So with the whole COVID thing, I was lucky because I'm based at the Francis Crick Institute and they have internal testing. So I was able to get back into the lab a lot faster than a lot of other institutes. So that is the blessing that I have. But obviously when you're coming back, because everything had stopped, it took so long to build it up again. So I don't feel like my project really came back alive again until maybe about September. So it's caused a six month delay in research, bearing in mind my mice take about a year plus to get tumors. So it's been quite a dramatic thing. But being back in the lab now, it's almost at this moment, almost feeling back to normal because this last lockdown, we were allowed to continue working, which was good, but obviously everything was reduced capacity. Um, but yeah, it has been a turbulent time to be a scientist, I'd say. But I think I am luckier than most because I know some people at other institutions still haven't quite got back to being normal they're still working shifts or working two to three days a week. So yeah, I, t I take my blessing, but it has still been very turbulent. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it. And no, it's been, it's been a very strange time. Uh, we went back into the lab October, actually. Okay. And yeah. um, that was, it was like, oh, hello, building. <laughs> hello, people. <laughs> but it, it's also interesting um, as well, like being in a different space from home, you know, mm. and, and I don't know if you felt like every time I have to leave, I go to the lab, or I go to the office. I am so drained by the end of the day. Like I, I get home and I'm like, oh, I just need to sleep. Like, whereas before, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's something else. But, you know, whereas before, obviously, in non uh, pre COVID, you have a full day at work. I mean, one of the things is looking yeah. at my Fitbit steps. You know, I used to do 12,000 a day and I'm like, yes, winning. Now I'll do maybe barely a thousand. I'm like, I'm so tired. You know, oh, <laughs> if I do 3,000 from going into work, I'm like, oh, gosh. I'm, I'm drained I'm actually drained I don't know if that's maybe is that just me or did have you had the similar thing do you feel no no it's true it's true and it's I think it's yeah it is definitely harder like at the moment I'm probably going into work four days a week I'd say um but that's because I'm choosing to have the day at home now because I've done some learning from lockdown as well there's been some learning of you know what you can actually gain quite a lot from working at home as well um but I think in the initial lockdown it was it was mentally hard because I knew that I was a lab-based scientist but I was working from home. So I basically wasn't doing my job. So a lot, I was hearing a lot of people talking about, oh, this is so wonderful. Look at all the work you can do at home. We're revolutionizing the workplace. I was like, no, this is terrible. I was lucky because I was writing a grant at the time. So I had something to fill the time. But when I finished that application, I was sitting there going, now what? <laughs> like, obviously there's stuff to do, but it was just so hard. The motivation was lacking. And it was exactly what you said barely leaving the house I went from the beginning of lockdown going for multiple steps a day yes I'm going on my daily walk to by the end I'm like I'm sitting here okay I haven't seen the outside and you know what I don't need it 
steps were zero exactly <laughs> steps zero um yeah, yeah. and and also because i saw recently on on the, the socials gosh i sound so old um <laughs> you're part you've joined a team of other scientists to tackle covid uh disinformation i don't know if i can say is it team team halo i can see actually the back there um and that you've been working with them um especially around sort of the anti-vax thing and, and trying to you know um encourage or even provide accurate information about the covid vaccines that are available um i see you're on tiktok let's talk about that experience i was highly i was reminded very recently that tiktok is not for my generation <laughs> i was like oops i was like i was saying i was speaking to a student i was saying how i use instagram they're like yeah okay that's better <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that hurts. but anyway thank you for that feedback you know who you are um, <laughs> um but yeah let's talk about that initiative i think it's amazing that you're doing that i think we need more people to you know just promote more accurate information about um not just uh COVID-19, but also the vaccines that are available and, and support people in making the right decision and, you know, the right decision for them um, mm. um, regarding vaccination. So yeah, tell us everything about it and what's TikTok like? <laughs> you know what, I, the best way of saying it, you know, when you're talking about it not being for you and it's, you know, the previous generation, I had no intention ever in my life ever to join TikTok um, until Team Halo came along. So <laughs> it was, it's quite interesting how I got into it. So at the time, you know, it was, we just had the vaccines come out. This has been about November or so. And, you know, there was a lot of people who were excited about the fact that it was a vaccine. You know, it's the gateway back to normality. So, you know, in my immediate circle, I was seeing a lot of like positivity for the vaccine and so forth. But then at the same time, there was a lot of people who were having some interesting thoughts around the vaccine is the best way of saying it. So, but that, and it wasn't necessarily always people who were absolutely negative about it. They just had a lot of questions or they didn't necessarily know about it. And I was having a lot of people um, asking, why should I take the vaccine or what's wrong with this? And a lot of misinformation started emerging around the vaccine. The fact that it wasn't safe, maybe it's being produced too fast and, or just ignore the whole vaccine thing. Just use a herbal remedy and that will solve everything. Yeah, I was hearing a lot of this. And I think at the time I got an email from Team Halo around um, December, where they basically asked me to get involved with this project. And I was like, what is this project? And what is it? why are you mentioning TikTok to me, <laughs> essentially? Um, and then I had a conversation with them and it basically is this massive initiative where they've got scientists from all around the world. So this is a global initiative, which is what's really cool. So I've got scientists in, in the US, they've got people in Brazil, they've got people here in the UK. And the whole idea is that you're making short videos on TikTok to try and spread information about the vaccines. And the whole idea is exactly what you said, it's accurate information so that people feel like they can make informed decisions. So the whole idea is about it, because when you think of like a lot of the misinformation that you have, it basically moves very quickly. It's very short. It's very easy to digest. It's not the long-winded thing that a scientist will tell you. It's like, this is the foreign, this is the case for it, but you know, we can't say this yet, or we can say that. Well, you know, people who are anti-vaxxers or want to spread misinformation, they just tell you as it is, this is not going to work under this, because they don't have to think about these considerations. So the whole idea about that is that these TikTok videos can be spread just as fast. It's, it's amazing to me how easily these videos go viral. But the thing is, they're going viral with correct information and accurate information so that they're easy to digest so that people who are interested um, in learning this information can actually make an informed decision. And the project, I think it started in October. 
Um, so it's been running now for quite a while and they've got maybe about 30 scientists involved and now it's had about 50, 50 million um, likes on TikTok, which is incredible. And yeah, for me, I think it's, I'm really enjoying being part of a project that can make a difference because there's a lot of things as a scientist, right at the beginning, I felt like, how can I make a difference within COVID-19? You know, I can't, I'm not working on COVID-19 research right now. I'm not a vaccinator. So for me, it was my opportunity to make a difference within um, the COVID-19 space. Like, how can I actually make an impact during this time? So yeah, very so. long-winded answer. No, it's amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing work. I'm just on the website. It's really, really cool. And as you said, it's I think a lot of people, especially lab-based scientists, scientists who could do something in this area, you know, at that time you're sitting there thinking, what can what can I do? How can I get involved? And I think this is a fantastic way because this is really needed. And there's all there was something you were talking about how those who want to spread misinformation, they don't have to overthink it. It's just like this is what I think done mm. <laughs> um, yeah just out oh, and I and you know I do wonder if sometimes in science we take too long to think of our rebuttal and everything else we want everything to be perfect and just make sure everything's right but actually we can do that if, if effectively um you know which is what you're doing so I think that's an amazing initiative and um is there like an end end point for this or is it as long as COVID is there this is how long the project runs yeah. Mm. I actually I don't actually know there's an endpoint what they've certified as the actual endpoint um but the, the whole point is we're gonna bring this pandemic to an end that's like their their strap line you know it's got high ambitions you know um but I think for me I think even if the project ends I think I've done some learning from this about the power of other tools so I think for example I've seen so many people on TikTok who are science communicators who have been doing it for a while and they're still doing it with the pandemic and providing accurate information. So I think for, for, for me, I see it as, you know, people who are interested in science communication, you know, organizations such as um, learned societies or universities, I think they could use that as another tool of a way to spread information easily to a different generation. Because the thing is that you have to understand is that most people who are on TikTok are age 16 to 24. So it's also a nice way to recruit younger people to these universities that we're talking about and maybe even expand these pools. It's just another string on the belt because Instagram is a little bit of an older generation now, which is- Oh, there she, she said it, she said it. Oh, it makes me sad. But it's my reality, it's my generation. You know how you have the TikTok generation? Oh, I love Instagram, how you're explaining. You the Facebook, the Facebook Oh yes, I'm not Facebook generation actually. Yeah, that's that's yeah. good. I, yeah. I'm in the Instagram, which is still a bit yeah, cool, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's one of those. <laughs> I, I do actually have a TikTok account, but it, I, I'm in oh. stealth mode. No, I don't do anything. I'm in stealth mode just seeing some of the stuff. I genuinely, I like, I don't really get it. But maybe, maybe you could give me some tips. Maybe you'll get me to make a... I'm not, no, yeah, I'm not going to lie. Part of the project, I got TikTok <laughs> training and that made me feel oh, old. That TikTok made me feel training. old. Yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I will stay on Instagram, but I, I, but, but having said that, there was something when you were saying that the age demographic for TikTok um, would actually, this, that would probably be a better platform to engage with to try and get more young people interested in STEM. Now I feel a bit guilty that I'm only focusing on my generation in Instagram, which I thought still young people were interested in. Clearly not. No, they are. They are. They are. It's just, you know, the teens are over on wow. TikTok. 
yeah mm. I don't I don't mm-hmm. I don't even know how to like the app is so confusing to me but anyway <laughs> I'll look on YouTube and, and try and see what's going on there well um Dr Faith thank you so much we have actually come to the end of the oh. um interview I've got one more question one um which is what would you say are your key take-home messages so from everything we've spoken about today uh yeah what would be the one two or three things you'd want people to take away Oh, that's such an interesting thing. We've talked about so many things today, actually. <laughs> I think maybe I'll just conclude something from like, I don't know, each area that we've kind of talked about. I think in terms of research and immunology, keep funding science, <laughs> I want to say right now, because right now with what's happening with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff that's going, I think it's just so important that we really think and value like science and research. Um, and with that, I also mean research funding. So I know right now, the gov- this is maybe a bit political, but the government has made a massive cut in foreign aid funding. And I know that has a massive impact on areas that we're interested in. So malaria, for example. So I think it's thinking about the bigger picture and not just focusing on the science here within the UK, but also elsewhere, because it does have an impact on the UK as well. Um, so that would be my take home from that. Um, I don't know what we can change here, but hey, um, the other thing is also thinking about, you know, what we were talking about, the discovery of um, Black Lives Matter in the last year, like we need to really think about how can we actually promote them and like I said, look at your organization, what can you do personally and what can you do to lobby your organization for change as well. And I think the third thing I'll say is take your COVID-19 vaccine when it's your turn. Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, Details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, So catch up with you next week. Bye.